0: much more bold to speak the word without fear this is god's holy inspired inerrant and infallible word amen let's pray lord we come before you every sunday asking for your help because we need it every sunday throughout the week lord the world has been working on us but your holy spirit has kept us by his grace we pray your Holy Spirit will be alive and active now as we consider your word, as we meditate on your word, as we try to store it in our hearts. Help us to hear it. Help us to love it. Help us to treasure it above all things. We thank you for our brother Will Stevenson and for the life of his grandfather who, that, that was spent serving you. Uh, we pray that this sermon would not only be an honor to him, but that it would also be used by you, Father, to bring in more of your elect for the sake of the glory of your name. And in your son's mighty name, we do pray. Amen. So a few months ago, uh, a longtime pastor buddy of mine just sort of up and quit the ministry. No scandal, nothing crazy. He just decided he didn't want to be a pastor anymore. And this got me to thinking, sort of going through my mental Rolodex of previous ministerial relationships. You know, where are the people that I used to labor in the gospel with? Where are they now? This was a discouraging endeavor. Thinking about people who used to be missionaries. Where are they now? Many of them not doing well. Even something like my time in the Christian music industry. Uh, There was a cohort of us who were bound together with a desire to use hip-hop for the the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Going through the Rolodex of my music partnerships, discouraging. Some of my my fellow artists have gone off into the occult. Some have gone off into atheism and some even into weirder things like Pan-African spiritualism. This got me to thinking about the church at large, the the broader American evangelical church, so-called. I started thinking about prominent pastors and church leaders like Rick Warren, who have evolved on the question of female pastors. Other prominent pastors like Andy Stanley, who are moving with the culture on questions of homosexuality and gender identity. I think these two megachurch pastors are merely symptomatic of that which is taking over entire denominations. I wish I could say that the so-called conservative churches don't have their own issues, but they certainly do. The reformed world is steeped in suspicion, accusation, and mutual recrimination regarding the question of wokeness. And when we're not arguing about things like CRT, which I'm not saying they don't need to be argued about, but certainly the way that we argue about them is not always edifying. When we're not wrestling with these things, we're encountering strange new doctrines that are dividing the church, like theonomy and reconstructionism. When we're not arguing about those things, we're having petty, silly arguments, ferociously on the internet with one another, over questions like, should our Christian witness be winsome? On the missions front, things are not doing well. The largest evangelical missions organization in the world advocates for a philosophy of ministry that is essentially inoculating tens of millions of people in countries all over the world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The largest gospel-preaching, Bible-believing denomination in our country is racked with sexual abuse scandals from seminary presidents, all the way down to the local church pastor. You start thinking about the state of the American church, and you think about these mega church celebrity pastor spiritual abuse cases, and you see that there is some sort of phenomenon at play here, from the Mark Driscoll's to the Jane McDonald's to even the Bill Hybels in our midst. Race relations in the American church seem to be regressing Gen Zers are deconstructing. Many American churchgoers don't even trust their pastor, much less talk to him, let him. They don't let themselves be pastored by their pastors. They would rather be shepherded by people that they trust whom they've never met from the Internet. Oh, I wish he could be my pastor. Sunday service in the average American church is... Unhelpful at best, dangerous, and pitiful at worst. Most Lord's Day gatherings in the U.S. are a production. They've been designed to entertain the sheep rather than edify them, pacify them rather than exhort them, encourage, and rebuke them. The word of God is largely absent in the local church on a Sunday morning. The preaching is sterile. The prayers are either in passing or simply non-existent. Children are nowhere to be seen on a Sunday morning. They're sort of shuttled off, away from the rest of the body. And then they they spend their whole lives separated from the congregation. And then they go off to college and their parents wonder why they leave the church. Well, it's because they were never a part of it in the first place. Outside of the church, our culture finds Christianity increasingly and utterly contemptible such that unbelievers rarely ever ask the question anymore, is Christianity true, but rather is Christianity moral? The traditional Christian beliefs about everything from the authority of the Bible to God's good design for human sexuality, from marriage and family to the doctrine of hell, it is all seen as hateful, bigoted, and ignorant. The prosperity gospel continues to grow globally, as do other heresies like Roman Catholicism and Mormonism. When I say that they're growing, I don't mean that they're growing by the hundreds or the thousands or the tens of thousands. I mean they're growing by the tens of millions. When we think about the state of the persecuted church, things only seem, as we look at the news coming into us, they only seem to be getting worse. I mean, you take the The five fastest developing countries in the world, the so-called BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Three of those five most prominent ascendant world powers have an anti-Christian agenda. And they have the political will, both inside and outside of their country, to pursue that agenda. Should I keep going? Talking about the seminaries and Bible colleges that don't believe the Bible? Should we talk about the local church pastors who refuse to preach the whole counsel of God? Should we talk about the legalism of the fundamentalists, the spiritual weakness of the average Western Christian? And None of this, of course, is even getting to the deeper underlying reality of Satan and his schemes, which we can barely see because we're so busy, even as Christians, focusing on things that do not matter. Sports, celebrity gossip, you name it. It's not hard to see why so many believers today are finding themselves increasingly anxious about the state of the gospel, the future of the church, the success of the Great Commission. They're they're asking themselves, how on earth can the church survive this onslaught of heresy, division, dissension, and apathy within, and the constant barrage of attacks from without. You know, every generation is prone to believe that the struggles they are facing are the worst of all, right? But as Paul puts pen to parchment in his letter to the Philippian church, he does so in part to address their anxiety about the gospel. The Philippians are anxious over the future of the church and the success of the Great Commission. And who can blame them? Their apostle, the man who first brought the word of God to them, the one who planted the church, the the missionary to the Gentiles, the guy that now we know wrote of the vast majority of the New Testament. He is in chains. And he is headed to Rome where he will most certainly die. And so the Philippians are wondering, will the mission die with Paul? Will his imprisonment put out the light of the gospel? What will become of our church? What will become of the church? And so the Philippians, like us, are anxious. And so Paul writes to put them at ease. So after his introductory remarks and the brief prayer, Paul begins the beginning of his letter with these words. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You're wondering if the gospel can keep going because of what's happening to me. I want you to know that it's precisely because of what is happening to me, that the gospel will succeed. So do not be anxious. Now, Russell Berger earlier, uh, as he was leading us, he really got to the heart of my concern in preaching this text. He said that there's a way that you can get this almost right, right? 85% of the way right. But this is a sort of zero-sum game. If if you get it 85% of the way right, you're kind of getting it all wrong. Right? There's a way that you can you can read what Paul's saying here and get it almost right and therefore basically get it entirely wrong. Here's what almost right sounds like: nothing can stop the advance of the gospel, not even persecution and death. This is true. It's fine in as far as it goes. But it does not go far enough. It doesn't capture what Paul is saying here. It doesn't carry the full weight of gospel hope that Paul is trying to deliver to the Philippians. As you're sitting there in the pew, it may be hard for you to appreciate the difference. But imagine that you were in chains. or Imagine that your church was perhaps even this day in danger of being burned down and looted. Uh, Imagine maybe that your family was facing persecution. What you need in this moment is to receive the fullness of gospel hope. And the fullness of gospel hope for your life is not merely that God can use your suffering, but rather that God has deigned your suffering. He has deigned for it. He has designed it to. He has planned it. He has predestined it to work for your ultimate good, as well as the advance of the gospel. And here's what the more accurate framing sounds like. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel, not even persecution or death. As a matter of fact, anything and everything that may be used to try and stop the advance of the gospel, God will use that very thing to advance the gospel. So a house church in China is scattered By government-sanctioned persecution. God is using that for the advance of the gospel. That's real life. Here's another real life instance. Real life, this actually happened. A female uh, missionary in the mountains of Afghanistan gets her head cut off by the Taliban. God used... Her brutal death at the hands of wicked men to build his church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Every Sunday, I come into this pulpit with a heart full of hope. I never know all of the ways, or perhaps even most of the ways, that the Lord will use His Word in the life of this church, but I usually step into the pulpit hoping that you will see just one thing, I'm talking for an hour, just one thing that will fundamentally change the way you walk with Jesus, just one thing in the Word that will fundamentally change your relationship with the Lord. So here's what I'm hoping for you this morning. I'm hoping, I'm praying, you better believe, I'm expecting, that you will learn to think like this. In this morning's text, Paul highlights two ways that his particular suffering, the suffering of persecution, will advance the gospel. The first has to do with gospel access. The second has to do with gospel boldness. So we're going to look at both of these in turn in points one and two. And then we're going to expand out and just look at suffering more generally in point number three. So note takers, here's your first point. Point number one, gospel access. The first way in which Paul's suffering, the suffering of persecution, has served to advance the gospel is that it has given him unique gospel access. And by unique gospel access, I don't mean that Paul can now access the gospel in a unique way. I mean that through Paul's suffering, he has gained access to minister the gospel to others in a unique way. So uh, Paul has... As he's sitting there in chains in Rome under house arrest, he's examined his suffering, he's examined his arrest, his chains, his various trials, and he's realized that his arrest has allowed him to be able to reach people, to access people that he would not have otherwise been able to access were he a free man. He's been able to proclaim the gospel to his jailers. Hard to, hard to get time with jailers unless you're in jail. But when you're in jail, you got all the time in the world. You're singing the gospel, you're praying the gospel, you're preaching the gospel. He has, along his journey to Rome, stopped at various cities where he's been able to call the Jewish leaders to himself and proclaim the gospel to them. This would not have been so easily possible were it not for his state-sponsored travel to his own beheading. He's been able to share the gospel with the sailors, transporting him by sea to his death. He's been able to proclaim the gospel to high-ranking Roman officials like Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. How do you get an appointment with a king or a governor? Well, one way is to be a supposed political dissident and to go before them on trial. Paul's gospel ministry has become so prominent in so many high-up places in the Roman Empire that he says in verse 12 that he has been able to proclaim Christ to the whole imperial guard. And none of this would have been possible without his chains. Now, the skeptic might look at Paul's words here and assume quite cynically that he's He's merely using his theology as a tool to rationalize his suffering after the fact. A more charitable reading, I think, and a more accurate reading would see that Paul recognizes in his suffering the fulfillment of what Jesus promised the apostles. Mark chapter 13, Jesus says this, For they will deliver you over to councils, And you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. He says it like this in the Gospel of Luke. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You have to love the way Jesus says that, right? He doesn't say, this is going to be tough, but while you're there, you might as well share the gospel. He says, no, this is your opportunity. Your divinely appointed opportunity. But what, what, what you really need to understand here is that this opportunity is only useful to advance the gospel because Paul was actually willing to bear witness in the midst of his suffering. Right? That's, that's what Jesus said. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. The gospel can only advance through our suffering in situations like these if we are willing to proclaim the gospel in the midst of these situations. Right? Paul wasn't just like, uh, while I'm here, I might as well. No, he saw this is my opportunity and I'm going to take advantage of it. And he did it everywhere he went. Paul was so intent on sharing the gospel. He was so consistent. He was so ferocious. He was so adamant. He was so thorough that the people listening to him thought he had gone crazy. Did you hear that in what Mary Beth read earlier, right? Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Friends, when was the last time you were so eager and bold to share the gospel that people were like, hey, buddy, maybe tone it down a little bit, okay? You're, you're, kinda, you're acting crazy. King Agrippa couldn't believe what Paul was doing. Paul had five minutes, probably longer, but you get, you get the metaphor. He just had a short time in front of King Agrippa. And he didn't waste any time. He preached. He, pre- he gave him the gospel And then when Festus tried to interrupt him, Paul didn't even acknowledge that. He just said, anyways, so King Agrippa, don't you believe this? Isn't this true? To the point where King Agrippa said, would you persuade me to be a Christian in such a short amount of time? You have to love Paul's response. Whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, this day, while i have the opportunity while i'm standing here in front of you i hope that they will become like me there have been one or two occasions where members of our church have brought visitors and i have very quickly gotten to the nerve of the situation with them i didn't waste a lot of time oh and where are you from you know how's your mom I just I looked at this person and I thought I don't know if you're ever going to darken the door of another healthy church. You might. I don't know if you will. And I certainly don't know if I'm ever going to have this opportunity with you again, so I'm not going to waste it. Let's talk about the gospel. And in two situations in particular, some members came back to me with with some version of this Festus King Agrippa comment like, "Hey man, that was a little intense." Right off the bat, I was kind of hoping they would come back a couple of times. I'm not saying I always get it right. I'm not saying that my discernment there is perfect. But I'm saying that you should at least have that category. And in your own heart and in your own evangelistic ministry, you should at least have that impulse that says, I'm willing to risk looking crazy because I have an audience, I have an opportunity to bear witness to you right now, and I'm not going to waste it. Paul says, I don't care if I have five years or five minutes with you. I'm going to give you the gospel. Now, implicit in this, in this understanding of bearing witness is that we should not assume that our suffering in silence is a sufficient witness to the lost. By sufficient, I mean that they can look at it, interpret it, understand it, and come to Christ by witnessing it. It's true that when we suffer well and when we suffer in silence like Jesus, a lamb led before the slaughter, that it does bear, bear a powerful witness. It does adorn the gospel, but it does not preach the gospel. Mere suffering can communicate, but that communication is very open to interpretation. Buddhist monks have covered themselves in gasoline and set themselves on fire without batting even an eyelash. Christians can suffer well and suffer in silence, but that suffering in and of itself is not sufficient to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In order to bear witness, you have to speak. You have to say something. You have to interpret your suffering because the people who are seeing it, their hearts are hardened their minds are darkened you shouldn't assume that they will be able to perceive in these symbols that which they need to understand an example of this comes from colossians chapter 1 turn there with me colossians 1:24 Very similar, very similar to what we're reading in this morning's text. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, now look, to make the Word of God fully known. Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Because downstream from my suffering is my opportunity to make the Word of God fully known. That cannot be accomplished merely with His physical suffering. How do we know that? Go down to verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. And and what is this proclamation? It's warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says, I'm... I'm overjoyed that I get the chance to suffer for you because in my suffering for you, I get a chance to preach the word to you. Now let's, let's bring this home practically to our day-to-day lives. Brothers and sisters, any time you suffer for the sake of the gospel, you have a divine appointment. You have a divinely appointed opportunity To proclaim the good news. To anyone who will listen. Especially your enemies. So don't waste it. When you lose your job. For the sake of his name. And if you're thinking. Well Sean this is the United States. Freedom of speech. Largely Christian land. That's probably not going to happen. You're probably wrong. You're probably wrong. Maybe, Maybe it won't exactly happen to you. I would be surprised if over the next 10 years, you don't hear, even in this local congregation, here in the Bible Belt, of people losing their jobs because they refuse to compromise on the gospel. When that happens, you tell the person firing you, your boss or the HR person, tell all your coworkers that Jesus is worth more than your career. Give them the gospel. When you are mocked by your neighbors... And I'm guessing the majority of that these days will happen online. Nevertheless, when you are mocked by your neighbors for believing what Christians have always believed and things that weren't controversial at all until about five minutes ago, when they mock you for that, you tell them that Jesus is worth more than your public esteem. And give them the gospel. My hope is that one day members of this church will go to the mission field. And they won't go where it's easy. My hope is that you'll go where it's hard. Where Christ is least known. Where things are most dangerous. And if you are the one who does that. If you go out, you may, like so many of your brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout church history, you may face physical violence. Even death. From a mob From police and military, from your neighbor with a machete, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that day comes, look your attacker in the face and tell them, Jesus is worth more than my life. Give them the gospel. God will have put you in that situation for that very purpose. It's not an accident. Persecution is a divinely appointed opportunity to bear witness to the gospel in the midst of our suffering. Point number two. Boldness. Let's go back and look at verse 14 again in Philippians 1. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So let's do a little thought experiment. Let's say that you've been placed on a task force. We'll call it the Great Commission Task Force. Okay, Your task is to strategize ways and means... Of helping Christians face potential persecution with more boldness and less fear. That's your whole job. That's the whole mission. What would you do? How would you try to strengthen the boldness of these persecuted believers? Maybe you would put them through a season of training in relation to like evangelism and apologetics... Right, so that maybe they would be less fearful of engaging in conversations with people, that they might be embarrassed, they don't have the right answer, that sort of thing. Maybe you would do something even like, that's on this end of the spectrum, the low end, the high end of the spectrum. You would even develop something like the army's seer school, where you would teach these Christians how to survive, evade, resist, and escape if they end up being arrested for their missionary Work right. The idea being that even if you are put in chains, you have the greater physical and psychological and spiritual capacity to endure and perhaps even escape. I don't know. Here's what you would probably not do. You would probably not point to an apostle in chains and say, look over there. He's been arrested. He's been in chains for years on end. And now he's... Probably going to get his head cut off. That would be the most merciful death. He might even be crucified upside down. Thrown to the beasts. Who knows? This is God's good and loving plan for his life. And it might be God's good and loving plan for your life as well. And yet this is essentially what Paul is saying in this morning's text. He's pointing to himself and he's saying, do you see? This is God's good and loving plan for my life. And somehow, some way, Paul says that that has translated into other believers fearing less and being more bold. Which I essentially take to be two sides of the same coin, right? If you're less afraid, you're more bold. So this this example of suffering has Not made people more timid, but it's made them less timid. How is that possible? Just stop and think about the disciples in the garden. Their master is attacked, he's arrested. What do they do? They scatter, they flee. They are not bold, they are fearful. So, so what's happening here with these brothers that, that Paul is looking at? Why are they more bold? I can think of at least three reasons why they are more bold in light of this persecution. So let's go through them one at a time. The first reason why suffering emboldens these believers comes from Acts chapter 4. Please turn there with me. Starting in verse 27. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. To continue to speak your word with all boldness. They see the danger. They see the threats. They see the powers and principalities at work against them. And they say, Lord, help us to continue to preach in boldness. Which means that they have already been bold for the sake of the gospel. Now, what happened between the Garden of Gethsemane, where the disciples scattered fear trembling no boldness to hear in acts chapter 4 where the danger is just as real as as a matter of fact it may be greater and yet there is boldness this is peter and john by the way right boldness what happened between them acts chapter 2 the coming of the holy spirit so the answer to our first subpoint here, the main reason why all true disciples of Jesus Christ can respond to suffering and persecution with boldness is because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. So, here in Acts 4, Peter and John ask God to increase and continue their boldness. By what means? By means of the Holy Spirit that is living in them. Remember, friends, every good thing that the Father does. In us, he does through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing good that you can ask for in your life that God doesn't do through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. He is the conduit of all of your sanctification blessings. Now, an implication of this is that without God's help, you will have no gospel boldness whatsoever in your hour of trouble. Now, listen, you might pull a Peter. Right, you were, you, When I said all the disciples scattered, maybe one of you said, well, what about Peter? What about him? He grabbed his little rinky-dink sword, ear gone. Listen, first of all, that boldness did Peter no good whatsoever. The only thing that it earned Peter was a rebuke from Jesus. Secondly, I'm not talking about earthly, carnal boldness. I'm not talking, talking about puffing your chest out. I'm not talking about the appearance of boldness. I'm talking about spirit-wrought gospel boldness, which oftentimes looks less like willing to fight and more like meek and lowly and gentle Jesus, lamb before the slaughter. Gospel boldness can only come to us through the Holy Spirit working it in our lives. The second reason why suffering emboldens the believer is because of our great hope. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about, there's this whole section on glory. And he basically says, listen, the new covenant has a glory that's greater than the old covenant. That's kind of one of the things that makes it new, okay? And he says that that there is a hope attached to this glory. This is how he says it, 2 Corinthians 3.12, Therefore... Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Right? So there's something about gospel hope that gives us boldness. So what I want you to see is that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us is he opens our eyes to help us see that glory. Uh, we are so, it's like we're trying to blind ourselves every day with, with every TikTok and, and every dumb movie that we waste our time on, guilty, right? Like with every image that we behold that isn't the glory of Christ, it's just like we're trying to blind ourselves to this massive, beautiful, tremendous vision of God and his glory that awaits us in heaven. Now now, Paul says that if we're able to sort of by God's grace Remove some of those blinders are almost like when the windshield is dirty and you clean it, right? If we're able to sort of clean the windshield of our hearts so that we can see that glory more accurately, what that does in us is it increases our boldness. How could it not? How could it not? You're looking at the glory of God. You're looking at the holiness of God. You're looking at the victory of God. Can you behold that and in any sense? Be afraid of men? Be afraid of suffering? Torture? Loss of money? Loss of health? This is why Paul says a little bit later in chapter 4. He says that this light and momentary affliction. And he, when you know the historical context of what he said, light and momentary? Are you kidding me, Paul? Being thrown to the lions? Being Tied to the back of a bull and drugged through the city square, burned alive at the stake, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight. So, momentary, eternal, light weight of glory beyond all comparison. You gotta love that phrase, beyond all comparison. He's like, I know I'm comparing for you right now these things. But I want you to know that it's actually kind of ridiculous that I would even try and compare the two because one is so obviously greater than the other. So you can only come to see your suffering as light and momentary when you behold the weighty and eternal nature of glory that is promised you in the gospel. And then third, the third reason why suffering emboldens believers is because the word of God cannot be bound. That is, the word of God cannot experience any of the setbacks that suffering causes in our lives. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 9 and 10. When Paul writes this letter to Timothy, he knows that he's probably not going to be on the earth much longer. And these are his final words to his disciple, his his son. In many ways, the man who's going to take the mantle of his ministry and run with it. And these are kind of like final thoughts, parting words. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering Bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything. Do not miss that therefore. Right? He says, I'm suffering. I'm in chains. I'm bound. But the word of God cannot be bound. Therefore, in light of this truth that the word of God cannot be bound, I endure. What does that mean? I suffer I I embrace this suffering. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Jesus, Paul, the apostles, and a million dead martyrs from that day until our own, they believed that no matter what, God is not bound and neither is his word. Even though we may die, the word of God cannot die. Even though we may be put in prison, the word of God cannot be put in chains. The word of God cannot be shackled. It cannot be held back. It is living and active. It is infinitely more powerful than anyone or anything that may try to stop it, kill it, control it, censor it, twist it, corrupt it, or in any way slow it down. Just think about Jesus, the incarnate word. A locked door could not keep him from entering into the upper room. The the, the tomb, massive stone, could not keep him enclosed in that space. The word is not bound. Do you believe this? If you do, then look at your brothers and sisters around the world and throughout church history Who have been chained and beaten and burned and broken and drowned and hung and tortured and beheaded and mocked and ridiculed and crucified. Who have lost everything, everything, reputation, husbands, wives, children, parents, grandparents. They've lost it all for the sake of Christ's elect. Look at them and consider their suffering and pray For the grace to participate in their boldness when your hour of suffering comes. When Peter and John asked God for the grace of boldness in their hour of need, in the midst of their suffering, he gave it to them. Verse 31 of Acts chapter 4. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you may be thinking, Sean, didn't they already have the Holy Spirit? Wasn't that Acts chapter two? Remember what we said last week? This filling language, it doesn't ever signify completeness. This side of heaven, it's just God is constantly juicing up our battery, right? They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God boldly. This is not just for the apostles. This is for you don't you dare come up to me after this service and say, oh, Sean, it can't be me. I'm meek and I'm lowly and I'm weak and I'm fearful. I know that. You don't think I know that? Of course you can't do this. Have you not been paying attention? That's the whole point. The whole point is that you, in and of yourself, cannot do it. The same John who preached here with boldness, that led to the growth of the church, he fled when Jesus was arrested. In his flesh, he could not do it. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, he did. And if the Holy Spirit lives in you, it doesn't matter how weak and lowly and fearful you may fear sitting here now in this pew on this Sunday morning. If Jesus has made a divine appointment for you to enter into persecution... In that hour, you will say exactly what needs to be said to bear witness to those who need to hear. This is a gospel promise. This is what our God does. He converts Christian killers into gospel preachers. He puts stuttering Moses in front of the mighty Pharaoh and he uses him to free the Israelites this is a real story. He caused the missionaries in the jungles of Colombia to pray for their killers, even as they were being shot to death with arrows. He caused slaves right here in our homeland to preach the gospel to their captors and enslavers. He caused Martin Luther, in a barely audible voice, To stand before his enemies and say, here I stand. I can do no other. And the same Holy Spirit that empowered them by his grace in their hour of need will empower you. Point number three. General. General application. So I I told you in the introduction that this last point was going to be more general. So the first two points, right, we're dealing with a very particular kind of suffering, the suffering of persecution, right? I think it makes sense if we expand that umbrella from the very particular suffering of persecution to all suffering in general. I think that's the way that Paul thinks. I, I don't think that Paul thinks, oh, only in my persecution Do I have an opportunity to bear witness and advance the gospel? I think Paul thinks that's his opportunity in all suffering. And then uh, persecution is just one very narrow expression of the larger principle. You can see that in places like Romans 8.28. Paul, speaking of the very narrow suffering, if you go back and read Romans 8 later this afternoon, you'll, you'll see what I'm about to say. There's a very narrow uh kind of suffering that Paul's talking about in that context, which is the suffering of persecution. But there's also a much broader context in which he's speaking about, which is just all kinds of suffering, tribulation, distress, nakedness, which, by the way, refers to poverty, okay? And and speaking of that suffering, he says this, We know that for those who love God, all things, persecution, distress, tribulation, poverty, famine... All things, all suffering work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, when he he talks about for the good of those who are called, what he means is so that they would come to salvation, so that they would be saved. So, this is a gospel principle. All suffering leads to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The gospel going out to the nations and bringing in all of God's elect. Think about it from a panorama lens, right? Just remember the story of the Bible. God has a plan, and he's had this plan since before the foundations of the world. He has a plan to call people for himself in love so that these people would praise his name, enjoy him, and glorify him forever. Do you agree with me that this is God's plan? Now, here's the question. Can God's plan be thwarted? No. Can it be thwarted by persecution? No. Can it be thwarted by famine and natural disasters? No. Can it be thwarted by ethnic cleansing and genocide? No. There is nothing that can shipwreck God's Plan Not a crowd of angry Jews, not Roman centurions, not politicians in our own day, not hostile agendas against Christianity, nothing. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. And all of my good pleasure, I will accomplish. And there is no asterisk connected to that. This is what our God does. Right? He turns imprisonment into gospel advancement. This may not be like hitting you the way that it should, because like, you're probably not going to be in prison for the gospel today. But there are like 50,000 believers in North Korea who are at this moment afraid that not only they, but their children and their parents and their grandparents will be put into a concentration camp because someone somewhere was found with a little snippet of the Lord's prayer. Do you see? This is is real. This is real to them, and it should be real to us. Just because we're not facing this danger doesn't mean we don't need to hear this. God takes the blood of the martyrs and He uses it to water the soil of the nations. He turns child abuse. Child abuse. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I was molested, I was beaten, I was verbally abused, what possible good can come from that? He takes that and He uses it to advance the gospel. He takes failed marriages. You're like, the divorce was nasty, I was cheated on, my relationship with my kids is broken, my reputation in the community. What possible good can come from this? He can use it. He takes miscarriages and dead children. He takes ended careers and cancer and bankruptcy and war and even our own sin and stupidity into means of growing the congregation of God. You might be sitting there thinking, oh, that's all true for people who suffer for the sake of righteousness, but not me. I'm suffering right now because of my sin, because of something dumb I did. Do you think that's a category that God hasn't considered? God takes something like a school shooting Something that seems totally and completely unredeemable. Something that seems as absolutely evil and as wicked as it gets. And he uses it. Genocide, famine, natural disasters, terrorist events, all of them under God's sovereign control are working together for the recreation of all things. For the salvation of God's elect and for the eternal glory of his name. How could it not be so? How could it not be so when the worst thing that has ever happened, the worst suffering that anyone has ever experienced on this earth, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, suffering the wrath of God, all of that was part of God's good and perfect plan to advance the gospel. Just think about Jesus, the eternal word, the spotless lamb, the perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly beautiful son of God. He's he's hanging there on that tree, a condemned criminal, full of shame, abandoned, broken, beaten, and suffering the wrath of God. It doesn't get any worse than that. There's never been a greater tragedy. No one has ever known deeper suffering. And God used it. Consider this, the gospel did not advance despite the cross, but because of it. Now stop and think about your life. Think about your suffering, your sorrow, your trials, your tribulations. Think about every bad thing that's ever happened to you, or just that one bad thing that happened to you that you just cannot seem to shake. You cannot seem to wrap your arms around, you can't move past think about that now listen this is serious and then rejoice because all of that especially that was part of god's good and perfect plan for your life if you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in christ I wonder what you think the purpose of your suffering is. Is there a purpose? It could be that we're wrong about the gospel. This whole Christian story is a bunch of nonsense, an ancient fairy tale, a bunch of collected myths. Could be that we're all just a bunch of flotsam floating around in space on a big speck of dust in the black abyss of nothingness. We are uncreated. We have no end. There is no meaning. Suffering is just life and then we die and none of it matters. But I think you know that that's not true. Right? I mean, it's easy to philosophize, right? Sit back in your armchair in college and read Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and and just kind of think about all of life's big questions in the abstract. And then your baby dies. Are you going to tell me in that moment that, that suffering means nothing? I want to challenge you this morning to ask yourself, is it possible that God has allowed me and perhaps even caused me in some mysterious sense caused me to suffer not to hurt me ultimately but to help me to to humble me to open my eyes to Jesus and the gospel and the ultimate purpose of my existence ask yourself is that possible Maybe that's why you're here this morning Let's pray Lord Jesus, we ask for your help by the power of your Spirit as we began our time in your word this morning, and we want to thank you. We know that we have received it, and although now we cannot see all the fruit that will be born, we trust that it will be because your word tells us that it is so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Church-